Let's turn our Bibles to Acts in chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon for those of us who don't do work in ninth hours. Uh, which was the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg for alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I don't possess silver or gold. Me too. But I do have what I do have. I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we, we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disown the Holy Spirit, sorry, the Holy and Righteous One, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent, return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him, you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onwards also announced these days. It's It's you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, great, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. 
In this scene, we have the first miracle of healing in the book of Acts. And Peter's impromptu sermon in response to this action. And we'll consider both of those things. Firstly, the action itself, and second, the sermon that followed it. We're told in verse 1 that these incidents, this incident happened at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There's some dispute as to what the, the time of prayer actually means here. Some suggest it may have been the time of the evening sacrifice, because the Jewish day ended at 6 o'clock in the evening. So if you didn't do it right, sort of 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you were going to miss the end of the day the day finished at six o'clock. So some say this was the time of the evening sacrifice, giving enough time for everyone to get home after the sacrifice. Others suggest that this might have been a time of public prayer in which prayers were, were said liturgically by the priests or the Sadducees. Either way, it was an opportunity where people came up to the temple and gathered. And it was a time where the power of God was demonstrated to the crowds through this act. And so as Jesus Peter and John are approaching the temple. They see this lame man begging. A man who's been lame since he was a child. All his life. Never known what it is to walk or to work. or Always dependent upon others. And he's been carried to this place specifically. Imagine, only weeks before, Jesus must have passed this spot. And not healed him. And we can only surmise that God was waiting for this moment so that this healing could have maximum impact in authenticating the gospel preached by Jesus' disciples. And we're told it was at the beautiful gate. And again, there's been some discussion about exactly which gate the beautiful gate was. The most likely contender from what I've read is that it was the double gate in the southern wall of the Temple Mount. It was a gate that was 210 feet wide, or 64 meters wide. I mean, it was huge with a stairway, a monumental stairway, and a beautiful domed ceiling that led up up to this gate where he was sitting. Um, And it's a gate that led directly into Solomon's porch, which is where we find Peter and John and the healed man in verse 11. So that's why people think that's the most likely contender. You've got this massive monumental stairway, and the pilgrims would come flooding up it, and at the top was this man sat there by the gate, begging alms. So as Peter and John are approaching the gate, coming up the stairway, the lame man spies them and asks them for money. And at this moment, Peter must have received a revelation from God about what he wanted him to do. His faith levels must have risen as he instructed the man to give him full attention. Look on us. Look at us. Give us your attention. Notice um, at this point, The man still thought he was going to get some money. He was only seeing his need as providing for his daily needs, but they have something much more special to give him. And then came Peter's well-known response. Silver and gold have I none, but, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Some of us remember a Sunday school song that went something like that. Walking and leaping and praising God. Notice, Peter didn't stop there. He didn't stop with the command, but he helped him to put faith into action. He took him by the hand and he stood upright. And as he stood upright, the man was healed. And the man's response to his healing was instantaneous, walking and leaping and praising God into the temple with Peter and John at the side. And it's saying, it says that he was almost hanging on to them, but still leaping and jumping as he went. 
This meant much more to him than the fact that he was able to walk again. It was salvation from a life of begging and dependence on others. It meant full restoration of his life. There was no health service to look after him. There was no benefit system to provide for him. All he had was people's goodwill. But now suddenly he could walk. He could work. He could provide for himself. His whole life was turned around by this one moment. There are a number of things we can learn from this incident. First thing to emphasize is this healing is carried out in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter wasn't claiming any power for himself. He was simply using the authority that God had given him, that would be given him directly by Jesus. If we do anything in someone else's name, it means we do it with their authority. When an ambassador goes to another country, he doesn't try and exert his own will. All that he says, all that he does is exerting the will of those who have sent him. So the British ambassador in, I don't know, Kenya doesn't just do whatever he wants. He's enacting the will of the British government in that situation. In the same way, Peter is saying, I'm not doing this because I've got any authority or power to do it. I'm doing it because God has commissioned me through his son, Jesus Christ, and I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. To do anything in someone else's name means to do it in their authority. And that's what Peter does here. They act and speak only as bidden. And in the same way, Peter acts as Jesus would have acted in the circumstance. We read it in the Gospels many times, Jesus healed people. And Peter just follows that through in Jesus' name. He sees the man. He feels compassion for him. He hears from the Holy Spirit what God wants for this man. And he administers that healing in Jesus' name as he's bidden. In the same way, we should act in response to the voice of the Holy Spirit within us and to do what we believe Jesus would do in the circumstance. This may be to administer healing to someone, or it may be a random act of kindness that will demonstrate the love of Jesus for that person. The important thing is that we make Jesus known through our words, through our actions, and that we remember that all that we do, we do not on our own authority, but in his name. And it was by that act that Peter was able to bring glory to Jesus. Second, notice that Peter doesn't doesn't pray for the man, but he commands him to be healed. And this seems to be the pattern throughout the New Testament. That's not to say that we shouldn't pray for people to be healed. We should. If we don't have a specific revelation that they're going to be healed, we should seek God on their behalf. However, there may be times when the Holy Spirit prompts us, when he whispers in our ear what he wants to do. And then at those times, we may step out in faith and command a healing. And God will give us the faith to see the person healed. Thirdly, Peter's action. uh, Peter took action and he raised the man to his feet. Clearly in this, this instance, the man needed a bit of prompting to receive his healing. And I'm not suggesting here that, and some of you here will be relieved, that we go around pulling people out of wheelchairs and the like. However, sometimes faith needs to be followed by action in order to receive what we pray. And I've told the story before, but it's worth reiterating, the famous story of George Muller when he was running an orphanage and when there was no food for the children one morning. But he knew that God was going to provide. And so he sat the children down around the table with no food. And he thanked God for his provision. And then there's a knock at the door. 
And a baker says, I've bought enough bread for all the children. God woke me up in the middle of the night and I've bought the provision. Then there's another knock at the door and it's the milkman. My cart has broken down down the road. I can't get this milk back to the, to the depot. Can the children do, use some milk? He took action and God fulfilled the faith that was in his heart. And sometimes we have to take action. We have to step out. When we believe God has spoken us, we need to put that step out in that belief. That's not to say that we're reckless or that we don't seek advice or counsel. However, sometimes it's in stepping out that we see our faith vindicated. So if God has spoken to you concerning an action to be taken, perhaps going for a new job, perhaps taking on a particular ministry, I'd encourage you not to hold back. Take a step of faith, maybe a small one at first, and see if God will not confirm his word by that action. The result of this healing, we're told in verse 10, that people were filled in wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You can hear the excitement building in the temple courts. The man, the man we saw at the gate, he's healed, he's healed, he's walking, he's jumping, he's leaping. That frisson of excitement passed around the whole lot. And this presented Peter with a God-given opportunity to preach. He took hold of it both hands, with both hands. And Paul encourages us to make the most of every opportunity in Colossians 4, 5. And this is exactly what Peter does here. And I'd encourage each one of us, take the most of every opportunity to share your faith. Such opportunities may not come along too often. And sometimes we can be fearful. But who knows what God will do through us as we step out and share. What's the worst that can happen? We might lose a friendship. But if they reject us because of what we believe, they're no true friend anyway. It's more important that people hear the truth. And have an opportunity to respond to it. So this brings us to the content of Peter's sermon. And Peter packs a lot in. I'm sure the sermon was actually a lot longer. We get a summary in, in Luke's, in Luke's um, account of it. Um, we just need to unpack this a bit, I think. And once more, Peter makes Jesus the focus of his message. He begins by affirming that he and John had no power to heal the man. And this is true of us all. We have no power to heal anyone. And our faith doesn't rest in ourselves or how good or bad we are, but in the power of Jesus' name. And this is what Peter begins to affirm. And he summarizes the fact that it is the people in his audience who handed Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified, even though he was the holy and righteous one. In other words, even though Jesus was God's Messiah, they still handed him over. He goes on, you killed the author of life or the prince of life. Peter leaves them in no doubt as to who he believes Jesus to have been. And of course, this parallels John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Peter is saying, you killed the author of life, the one who is the creator of all of us and who gives us that opportunity to live. But God raised him from the dead. And there we have another one of those but gods as we saw in chapter 224. When you say but God, it changes everything. They destroyed the Messiah, but God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. 
And the proof of the resurrection is then given in two things. Firstly, the fact that Peter and John are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw him alive after his crucifixion. And the second thing is that the power of Jesus is still effective in healing this man. This would not be possible if Jesus was just a dead rabbi. The fact that this man has been healed demonstrates that Jesus has conquered sin and death. In verse 17 to 18, Peter gives his audience and their leaders some latitude by telling them that they acted in ignorance when they crucified their Messiah. But that God was using their ignorant actions to fulfill the prophetic scriptures that foretold that the Messiah would die. And once again, we see the sovereignty of God being worked out through, through, through this situation in spite of the foolish and selfish actions of humanity. And this should reassure us once again that God has all things in hand. He has all things under his control. And when it seems like the universe, the world is out of control, know that we have a God in heaven who has everything in his hand. In verse 19, we come to Peter's appeal. I love this appeal. It's not, let's have every eye bowed, every eye closed. If you want to invite Jesus into your heart, just raise your hand. His message is, repent. (laughs) Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Our decision to follow Jesus needs to be more than an emotional response to a heartwarming message. It needs to result in repentance. Repentance means recognizing that we've been living contrary to God's ways, that we've taken on values that don't line up with his word, and that we've been living selfishly. It means that as we recognize these things, we choose to lay aside all, all else and instead choose to surrender our life totally over, the, over to him. And Peter promises if we do that, times of refreshing will come. When we make that decision to really follow Jesus, the guilt of our past is wiped out. Our sin is no longer held against us, and we're free to become all that God originally intended for us to be. We are free to pursue the life that will be filled with the joy of the Lord. But the starting point is is a decision of the will to live for ourselves no longer, and instead to live for God. And so Peter says, repent, that your sins might be wiped out. And having called for repentance, Peter reminds them that Jesus is going to return. He says, currently he's in heaven. But a day is coming when he will return and that will result in the restoration of the whole of creation and specifically the restoration of Israel. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming to reign as king over this earth. And in that our hope can rest. Peter then affirms that the promise was made in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, that God would raise up a prophet like Moses, and they had to listen to him, and that this has its fulfillment in Jesus. And just as Moses led the people of Israel into their inheritance, so Jesus will come and bring the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel concerning the kingdom of God, and lead all who follow him into the fullness of their inheritance. But the promise is not just for Israel, because Peter reminds his audience of the promise made to Abraham that through, all your, through your offspring, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. In other words, he's telling his audience that although Jesus came first to bring them to repentance, his coming was never meant to be exclusively for Israel. It was that, so that the blessing of Abraham, of that covenant, could go to the whole world. This is just an aside point. It's interesting 
that although at this point in the narrative, Peter recognizes that the gospel is not exclusively for Israel, it takes till chapter 10 for him to do anything about it. And then that only comes as a result of a vision. In his head, he knows it, but somehow he can't get out beyond his thinking concerning the Jews. Even though he recognizes this truth, his nationalistic prejudice blinded him to the possibilities in front of him. Jesus had been quite clear in his final words to them in Luke 24, 47, that the gospel had to go to all nations. And it was the disciples' responsibility to fulfill that mandate. And yet somehow they had problems grasping the fact that they had to go and do this. They couldn't break out the mindset that the gospel was exclusive. Eventually, perhaps through persecution, the disciples did grasp that preaching the gospel to all nations was their responsibility. And they traveled all over the known world, most of them paying the price for their action with their lives. Perhaps it took the likes of Paul and Barnabas to model such missional activity. Sometimes our own thought world is too small. It limits us from achieving what we could. Maybe we think we're not good enough or just not able to take on a particular thing. Maybe we think someone else could do it better. Maybe it's just not entered our thinking that life could be different or that we could do or be more than we are at the moment. And so if you're in that place where you think, no, it's somebody else, I'm not good enough, I can't do it. I want to affirm that God has something for unique for you to fulfill. He's made each one of us as a person of influence with a circle of friends and family. He's placed us in a body to, to help us flourish. He's given us the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. It's time for some of us to grasp hold of what God has called us to. And if you're not sure what that is, ask the prayer team to pray for you afterwards. If you feel limited, ask God to expand your horizons so that you can see beyond where you are now and grasp hold of all that he has for you. The result of Peter's preaching following the healing of this lame man was twofold. The first one was that he and John were arrested by the temple guards at the instruction of the Sadducees who were not happy that Peter was proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus since even though they'd seen it, they didn't, the Sadducees didn't believe in it. The result for Peter and John was a night in the cells. And I'm sure that would have been a lot less comfortable than a night in one of our police stations or even in Humber Prison. But secondly, the message bore fruit. And the number of believing men, nobody was counting the women and children, the number of believing men rose to 5,000 as a result. We're talking of a megachurch here. No wonder the authorities were beginning to get nervous. More of that next week. But I was also struck, um, and I haven't developed this thought yet, but it's, it talks about 5,000 men. Where else do we see that in the Gospels? The feeding of the 5,000. Jesus fed 5,000, and 5,000 come to faith as a result of the life and death of Jesus through the preaching of Peter. I don't know what the tie-up is. I haven't thought it through, but I'm sure there's something there. But nevertheless, the word bore fruit, and we see a, a church of significance formed because God moved in power, and God caused the response of the people to come to faith.
So Peter and John followed the prompting of the Holy Spirit and saw a great harvest as a result of stepping out in faith to proclaim the good news. And I'd encourage us all this week, look for the opportunities that present themselves. Don't hold back. Don't limit yourself in your thinking. Join with Paul in Romans 1.16 who says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen.